Uh, today's Palm Sunday. We call it that because today is the day, it's the Sunday before the cross and the resurrection. It's the day in which Jesus is mounted on a donkey and coming into town and the crowds are cheering and they're laying palm branches on the ground and cloaks because they think that Jesus is the Messiah. They think that he's the one who's come to deliver them. And in their mind, they're thinking primarily, deliver me from the Romans and my terrible life that I have under them. Um, so they have kind of a twisted idea of what kind of Messiah he is, but, but they, they, they are, it's appropriate what they're doing. <laughs> it's appropriate that they're cheering Jesus on and they're glad that he's come into Jerusalem uh, to deliver them, though they don't understand how he's going to do it. And so that's why we call it Palm Sunday, those, those branches on the ground, the cloaks, the excitement, the, the hallelujahs that are going up. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the son of David. Um, that's all Palm Sunday. And we read that. Spencer and, and others read the, the account of that this morning. What we're looking at this morning is the verses immediately following. So as the parade is heading towards the city, and they're coming down the Mount of Olives, somewhere in there they turn a corner, and Jesus sees the city of Jerusalem. And so now Luke takes us to that event. Everything kind of narrows down. It's like uh, the camera focuses in on Jesus. The, the, the noise of the crowd fades into the background. And now we're looking at Jesus and his response as he looks at the city of Jerusalem. So that's what we're going to read starting in verse 41 of chapter 19. <clears throat> when he drew near and saw the city, he wept. He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Before we unpack that, let's pray. Yeah, in your mercy, Lord, first of all, ask for a voice to say what you have to say here. <clears throat> and I trust that you'll give that. But more so, Lord, words don't penetrate our heart unless the Holy Spirit gives access and illumination. And so that's what we're really asking for that you would penetrate our hearts and get us into the mind and heart of Jesus this morning and show us what he, what he saw and conform us to that image. We ask it in his name. Amen. <clears throat> I'll start by asking a question. Uh, why does a person weep? What would make you 
spontaneously break down into tears over something. Think about times that may have happened with you. And it might have been something happy. I've seen people break down into tears over a marriage proposal from someone that you love. Um, people break into tears maybe if they win the lottery. It's never happened to me and it never will since I don't do that sort of thing, but I hear it happens. Happy things can make you break into tears spontaneously. More often, though, I think it's something sad. It's when something bad happens to you or to someone that you love. We weep over a child who goes astray, if you're a parent. We weep at a hospital bed. We weep at a funeral. In fact, in the Gospels, most of the time when there's weeping, it's at a funeral. It's over a loss of someone. Weeping is what you do when something touches you at the core of your soul, touches the, the deep longings of your heart, the things that really matter to you. You don't have to work yourself up into weeping. <laughs> it just happens spontaneously because it touches a nerve of something that's already there, a value, a, a longing, a deeply held desire. When Jesus turns the corner in the road, with the crowds shouting their praises in the background, suddenly the city of Jerusalem comes into view, and, and when it does, he weeps. Something about the city hit him with such force that he began to grieve, began to cry. What we want to do this morning is ask the question, why? Why did he weep over Jerusalem? The answer to the question tells us something beautiful about the heart of Jesus. For people like you and me. <laughs> and it also tells us something about the heart that Jesus intends to form in those who know and love Jesus. There's something that touches the core of his being that he intends to touch the core of our being also. And we'll think about what that is and how it applies to our lives. My outline is simple. We'll, we'll first think about the fact that Jesus wept. We'll then we'll explore why he wept. And then we'll see how that applies to each one of us. <clears throat> so let's begin with the first observation. He wept. Verse 41, when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. If you've read the Bible, particularly the Gospels, about the life of Jesus, there's one thing that you notice, or, or rather I should say there's one thing that you don't notice, which is that you never read any examples of Jesus laughing. Has that ever occurred to you? <laughs> You do not read about Jesus laughing ever. You do read about him in tears. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus, for example, when he had died and he delayed and on purpose and he went there and he saw Martha grieving and all the crowd grieving and it says that he wept. He weeps here at the sight of Jerusalem. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears 
to him who is able to save him from death. That's probably a reference to the Garden of Gethsemane when he's in his agony as he's soon to be rejected and forsaken by his father. Jesus wept. Jesus was moved, grieved, undone, we might say, to tears. We never see him laughing, though. And that begs the question of why is it that way? <laughs> because certainly it's not because laughter is wrong. Laughter is a natural byproduct of joy. Um, Psalm 126, one of the songs of ascent that the, the Jews would sing on their way to Jerusalem for the feast, it starts out this way, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Then our mouth was filled with laughter. That's, that's appropriate. When, when you're experiencing blessing, laughter is right. It's not a sin. Jesus could have laughed. In fact, Jesus uh, says that he, his heart for disciples was that my joy would be in you. Jesus had joy. If laughter is one of the byproducts of joy, certainly there would have been times when he might have laughed, probably laughed. He promised in Luke 6.21, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. <laughs> Imagine that, you'll laugh in heaven. You'll laugh when you're in the new heaven and the new earth. It's going to be so enjoyable <laughs> that you won't be able to help yourself. Laugh. Laughter is a good thing. And yet, we never read of Jesus doing it. I think that's a curious thing. Why would the Holy Spirit intentionally leave out examples of him doing something that's very good? I can think of one reason. There might be others. But here's one. When we come to the Bible, the way that we often come to it is as sufferers. We come as brokenhearted. We come as people who are looking for hope. And when we read the scriptures, we are never going to encounter a Jesus who seems indifferent to your suffering. When you're downcast, the last person you want to be around is somebody who's laughing. Somebody who can't relate to what you're going through. You don't want to be around people like that. You're not going to be attracted to a Savior who's laughing while you suffer, but you will be attracted to a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's Hebrews 4.15. That's the Jesus that you'll always find in the scriptures. <laughs> There's going to be a time when you'll laugh with him. <laughs> and it may not be after death either. <laughs> it could be today. It, there's good reason to do it today because if you're saved, if you're going to heaven, if you have his presence, there's a good reason to laugh now. Um, but you're not going to find him doing it in the scriptures because so often what we need to see is the one who weeps like we do. That's my theory. Jesus wept. That's the first observation. Let's see why he wept. <clears throat> Again, verse 41. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Now, now why did he do that? 
We don't have to guess because Jesus tells us what's on his heart when he's weeping. As he sees Jerusalem coming into view, here's what he says in verse 42. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is one of those places in Scripture that shows us that Jesus is not just a man but that he is God in the flesh because he sees the city of Jerusalem and he knows what's going to happen in the future. In the future, that at that time was about 35 to 37 years out. And he already sees it, and he's already weeping over what's going to happen. He knows that this city, this beautiful city on a hill, is going to be destroyed completely. There won't be one stone left on another. And history has borne that out. There was a historian who lived at the time. His name was Flavius Josephus. You may have heard of him. He was Jewish, but he was pressed into service by the Roman Empire to work for them, so to speak, to be their historian. And so he's going where the, where the Romans go. And um, he recorded what happened to Jerusalem as an eyewitness. Um, over time, after these events of, that we're reading today, after these events, over time, the Jews would finally throw off Roman rule. They would finally rebel against them, and they, and they occupied the city of Jerusalem. No more Roman rule for us. They rebelled. But in 70 AD, so this is less than 40 years later, after Jesus wept over the city, the Roman general Titus came to Jerusalem with four legions of soldiers. That's somewhere between 12,000 and 20,000 Roman soldiers. They laid siege to the city. They cut off its resources for months. They surrounded it. And when they finally broke through the city walls and the defenses, they killed every man, woman, and child within. And then... Titus gave the order to demolish the city. Josephus wrote what the aftermath looked like. He said it was so thoroughly laid, even with the ground, by those that dug it up to the foundation, that there was nothing left to make those that came afterwards believe it had ever been inhabited. As a complete destruction, the only thing that was left was what's called the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall which is still there today. That's the only thing left of what the original city was. You couldn't tell that it had been a city, except for that. Just as Jesus said, they will not leave one stone upon you, one, not one stone upon another in you. Jesus saw that playing out in the future of Jerusalem. He looked upon the city and he wept. So on one level, we can see the reason Jesus is weeping over the city is because he sees this destruction coming. 
But we can go deeper than that. The physical destruction might be the occasion of the weeping, but still we have to ask, why does it matter to him so much that this city, that Jerusalem, should suffer that fate? And I think we have answers to that question. For one thing, it's what the city of Jerusalem represented. It's the city on this planet that God himself chose as a place to display his glory and his presence. Psalm 48, 1-3, describes what Jerusalem was supposed to be. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion, in the far north, the city of of the great king within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. See, Jerusalem was chosen to be the city of our God. This is a place where God makes himself known like a fortress. This is the place from which King David ruled at He's to rule on behalf of and representing the great king. God is our king. It's to be the center of worship of our God. It's where Solomon had built the temple. And that one was torn down earlier on in history because of Israel's rebellion. But then it was rebuilt. Now there's another great big one there. It's still supposed to be this place where God is to be worshipped. And it's to be obvious that it's this God, the God of the Bible, that's to be worshipped. Jerusalem was to be a city set on a hill, the joy of all the earth, because it pointed man to God. This physical place to reflect the reality of God's majesty and his beauty. Jesus looking over the city, and he knows it's going to be completely destroyed. He weeps over what should have been. Because it wasn't that anymore. Now it was a place where God wasn't worshipped in the way he ought. It was the loss of a symbol of the glory of God. And it was going to be destroyed. So it's, it's that. It's, it's what should have been. The glory of God is at stake here. And it's going to be, this city is going to be ruined. And we won't be able to see what, what he intended anymore. So he's grieving over that. But it's more than just the physical destruction of the beautiful buildings that strike sorrow into his heart. His grief is over the destruction of the people. Not only you, but your children within you, he says. He's concerned and he's grieved over the destruction of the people who are going to experience God's judgment for their sins. Notice the reason he gives for the destruction. It is because you did not know the time of your visitation. That is, because you people in Jerusalem, you scribes and Pharisees and elders and everyone who claims to be waiting for your Messiah, because you people will not recognize the Messiah when he comes to you, you will be destroyed. Jesus is about to walk among your streets as your Savior, as God in the flesh. But what will you do? You will reject Him. You will crucify Him because of the hardness of your hearts. And so, 
you will be destroyed under God's judgment. See, Titus would come in to suppress a rebellion. That's all he was interested in. He was a pagan. He, he didn't care less about the day of visitation of Jesus. He came in to restore order. He was a pagan idol worshiper. But he would be an instrument of God's, in God's hands to carry out judgment on a people that would reject Jesus. Who would crucify him in just a few short days. That's what Jesus is weeping over. He's weeping over the fact that people are going to perish in their unbelief. He's weeping over the coming eternal judgment because the wages of sin is death. First the physical death, but then the second death, then the lake of fire. And that touches him. That moves him to consider that fate of people created in God's image and given so many opportunities and yet to reject it all. That grieves his heart. How terrible are the consequences for rejecting God? So why did Jesus weep over Jerusalem? I think we can sum it up in one word. Love. Love. Love like a person who weeps at a funeral. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. People matter to Jesus. Even the ones who hate him. Even the ones who were about to crucify him. Now this has implications for our lives. There are ways this applies to us. And so the, for the remainder of our time... I want to make connections to your life and to mine. So first, of, we're going to look at how it applies to the believer. Someone who believes in Jesus as Lord. Someone who calls himself a disciple of Christ. Somebody who wants to be like him. We'll see how it applies to you first. And then after that, we'll talk about how it applies to you if you're not a, a disciple of Jesus, not a follower. Here's how it applies to the believer. <clears throat> what it means is, you will weep. You will weep. I will weep. I don't just mean you'll weep at funerals and hospital beds. I mean you will weep over the city that you live in. You will weep over Aurora. You will weep over Denver. You will weep over the prospect of people dying in unbelief and rejection of Jesus. At least you will and I will as we become more and more like Jesus. <laughs> because the renovation plan that God has in mind when he calls us to himself through faith in Jesus is to take on Jesus' character and his heart. It's Romans 8.29, those whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. God's predetermined plan for believers is to conform them, to shape them according to the mold, according to the person of Jesus Christ. And that means developing a new value that wasn't there before. That we would weep to think that someone we know or someone we meet or people that we don't know or don't meet are going to perish forever. 
That's a new thing that he puts in our heart. That's part of the new creation that he makes us. This genuine concern and even love for people who don't know God and those who even reject him. God would have us get to the point where weeping over their condition is what we spontaneously do when we really think about where the, what their plight is. We'll weep over our city. We'll weep over our neighbors. Like the way a person weeps over their wayward child. Like a person who weeps at the f- funeral of a friend. And it won't be forced. We won't have to work up the tears. We will weep because we really do care about what happens to them. Now, I know that when we say that, when I say that, many of us are probably feeling really guilty right now (laughs) because we don't feel that way. We don't really feel that way about our city, about the people around us. We may have a hard time just loving the people in our own house, much less the stranger, much less the one that we don't like out there. If we're to be honest with ourselves, we have many other reactions when we see the city than Jesus had. I'll just name a few, and all of these come from my own heart. Here's some reactions we're more likely to have. One is to recoil in disgust at the city. We're well aware of how far our culture and our cities have fallen from what God intends. Nobody needs to tell you how much evil takes place all around us every day. You can't read the news without knowing about it. And we can experience revulsion when we see the city. We think things like, I wish I could get away from all this. I wish I could move to some ranch in Montana and just be done with it and have no more interaction with all these people. That can be there in our hearts. Now, to be sure, there are things to be disgusted about. There are things to be angry about. Things for which God is going to bring people into judgment. Even Jesus, after this scene, goes into Jerusalem. And what does he do? He goes to the temple and he gets a whip and he drives people out. Saying, this is supposed to be a house of prayer and you've turned it into a den of robbers. And he throws over their tables. He wasn't being just a sympathetic, weepy guy at that moment. He was acting in the role of judge. There are things to be disgusted about, things that can make you angry. That's not wrong. But does weeping precede that? First he wept before he did that. Another reaction we might have instead of weeping, is to be enamored with the city. There's so many wonderful things in the world. There's so much cool stuff. There's, there's beautiful places here. There's great music. There's amazing food. There's helpful technology. There's creative movie making. So many great things to enjoy, and we can get caught up in that. We can get enamored with that. Even Jesus' disciples had this problem. Later in chapter 21, they're actually in Jerusalem now. And we read that some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. Mark's gospel records one of the disciples saying, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. 
They were like in awe of this place. These are fishermen from Galilee. They don't get down to Jerusalem every day. And, and look at this amazing stuff. <laughs> and Jesus has to say, well, yes, they are wonderful buildings. And there won't be one thing left of them in 40 years. They're going to be destroyed. We can get enamored with our city, with our culture and what it has to offer. We can just join people in indulging in all the good stuff without weeping over the plight that they're in. Another response we could have instead of weeping is to be paralyzed with fear. When we see the city, what do we see? Do we mainly see a threat? That's a big temptation, I think. What will people do when they find out I'm a Christian? What will they do if I try to share my faith or if I take a stand for my faith and I say no to something that I'm being asked to do that I know is not God's will? Will they mock me? Will they persecute me? Will I lose my job? Will I get sued? Will I go to jail? Believers have fears about these things. The threat is real. We live in a culture that's non-Christian. You are likely going to suffer something for your faith in Christ. And so our response can be to be silent, to withdraw, to be more concerned about ourselves than about the perishing people. That's certainly a temptation for me. And I think that it had to be a temptation for Jesus. Remember, he was human. I already read Hebrews 4.15, but it says he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knew full well what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem. He knew he was going to die there. He said to his disciples in Matthew 20, 18 and 19, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. He knew that. He could have been tempted to turn around when he saw that city come into view and let fear take him backwards. But that would have been sin. Jesus is no sinner. It was the love of the people that he would save that he pressed forward to endure the cross, to suffer God's punishment for our sins that we might be forgiven. Love for God and for people overruled the temptation to fear. And when he wept over the city, he wasn't weeping over his own death. He was weeping for those who would not profit from it. But our reaction when we see the city can be fear or it can be being enamored with it, just do the same thing everybody else is doing or it, it can be just that we think it's ugly, we don't like it. <clears throat> Bottom line, love for the perishing city isn't something that comes naturally to us. So it might seem like it's an impossible mountain to climb <laughs> to ever get to where Jesus is. Uh, we might just give up and say, well, I'll never get there. I don't think I could ever weep over Aurora 
and Denver. I'll just, I'm just not sure that I even want to. And then we can just leave here this morning <laughs> eager to forget about this message and go on to something else that's less convicting. <laughs> but there's good news for us, friends. <laughs> God knows that we're like that. That's why he sent a savior. That's why he has a program to renovate us, to renovate our heart, to actually make a new creation, to actually change our fundamental person so that now we're able to love that way. We were actually able to weep over somebody's lost condition. That's what God's grace does. That's what the Holy Spirit within us makes happen. What's the first fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5? The fruit of the Spirit is love. That's the change going on because something new has been put placed within you, Christ himself, and he loves and he weeps over the city and he's conforming you to his image. That's the fruit of the gospel in our lives. It's not an impossible mountain for Jesus to climb because he's done it. It is impossible for us, but it's not up to us. We have Christ in you, the hope of glory. <clears throat> I think there are two ways that we can grow in this love, though, because obviously we struggle there. I struggle there. <laughs> There are ways to grow. There are ways to lay hold of the fullness of Christ by his spirit within you. I'll mention two. I think this first one is the most important. It's to really know, to really believe, to really embrace Christ's own love for you. To really ponder the reality that that, that depth of, of compassion that Jesus showed for this enemy city is actually a demonstration of the compassionate love he has for you. If he would have that kind of reaction to the people that would crucify him as enemies, does he not have that for you also? Because you, like me, were once an enemy of God. A child of disobedience, Ephesians 2 called us, walking according to the course of this world, just like the people in, in the city of Jerusalem. And, and so if he had that kind of reaction to them, does he not have that same reaction to you? That, that yearning for you to know life. And I would say, he has even more love for you than he had for those who would perish. Because he's done something more than just sympathize with our weakness. He's come and he's claimed us for his own. He has a love for the whole world. I think this passage is one of those places where we see it. There is a love that he has, even for the lost who will never be saved. But there's a particular love. There's a special love. There's, I want to say, even a deeper love for the one that he actually chooses and calls to himself. 
Because only the church is called the bride of Christ. That's a different kind of love than the love for somebody who's not your bride. Only the church is called those who are adopted. <laughs> there are many people to choose from, but only a few get adopted and get, get to go into the house and be the recipient of love forever. Only believers, of only believers is it said that he will rejoice over you with singing. In Zephaniah 3.17. Only, only to the disciples did Jesus say that having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, or as the NIV says, he loved them to the uttermost, to the fullest extent. That's how he loves you, believer. He has an internal reaction to thinking about you, which commits him to lay down his life in your place and to do all necessary to keep you to the end. I think the more we think through that and we realize, you know what? I was an enemy when he had that love for me. How can that not break down our resistance to the people out there that we see as enemies or strangers? If he's done that for me, certainly I can do that him helping me certainly I want to do that I want to be like Jesus I think that's one of the implications of John's letter we love because he first loved us it's the stimulus for love to understand and embrace his for us so I think we grow in love, we grow in caring about the lost by knowing Christ's love more deeply. That will make us weep over the city, I think. But the second way, maybe we call this one the, the practical doing. <laughs> Just step out in faith and actually love people. <laughs> just, just go do it, just do the next thing that, that love would indicate should be done even before you really care about them. <laughs> that might sound like doing things out of duty, but the reality is often the feelings, often the true concern for people doesn't happen until we actually engage with them. Feelings will often follow our actions. So, practically, what does it look like? Get to know the non-Christian person in your life. Ask them about their life. Find out their struggles. Do something then to help them get some hope. Practice it. And I think the feelings will come. Um, we've gone out to Colfax Avenue twice now. We'll probably do that monthly. I'm hoping starting May. So we go down there on a Monday night and we join up with Sean Sigma and some other people and we pass out food and we pray for people at the motels on Colfax and you know what I can find a hundred reasons why I don't want to do that <laughs> and when I go I'm not necessarily I would say really drawn to the people but the two times that I've gone once you're open once somebody opens that door and you've got food and they appreciate it and you ask them is there anything I can pray for you and they say yes and you hear their story, 
you, you weep. It, it changes you. you. You will actually feel for them. But it doesn't happen unless you say, okay, I'll go on Monday night even though I don't want to. But that's one of the things God uses is to just do the next thing. What does love require? What does it look like in action? And in the doing of it, he meets us. And we change. We grow. I think that's how we would weep over the city. Let me close with how this applies to you if you're not a Christian. And if you're not, I'm glad you're here. Because I think the Lord has something for you today. And this is what it is. Today is the day of your visitation. Today, God is making known to you the way of peace. And what he's saying is, recognize Jesus as the Savior. Recognize you have sin in your life. You've broken God's law. There's a penalty for that. It's death. It's the eternal death. But Jesus came for one thing only, which was to take the blame for our sins and the punishment so that God's justice will be satisfied and we could be forgiven. And his message is, believe that. Believe that you are a sinner and that you need Jesus. You needed him to die on a cross for your sin. And all that it takes now to receive it is faith. Trusting in him. Believing in him. So he calls you to believe today. To give up the fight. To lay down your pride. To yield. And I pray you will. So that no one will have to weep over you any longer. And so that you can end up with all the saints where there will be no reason for you to weep either. May the Lord grant that. Let's pray.